Lost without hope with no place to begin Your love made a way to let mercy come in When death was arrested and my life began Ash was redeemed, only beauty
So this morning we're going to do things a little bit differently. We're not going to uh, have announcements until the end. Uh, not going to have a children's moment, but what's going to happen is we're going to play through, uh, play through our set, and at the end of that we'll dismiss the kids. And ideally it will be about the same time that they are uh, they're dismissed. So this will be our call to worship. So April, if you will, read from God's Word. Um, we're going to read Psalm 150. Praise the Lord, praise God in his sanctuary, praise him in his mighty heavens. Praise him for his mighty deeds, praise him according to his excellent greatness. Praise him with trumpet sound, praise him with lute and harp. Praise him with tambourine and dance, praise him with strings and pipe. Praise him with sounding cymbals, praise him with loud clashing cymbals. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord, praise the Lord. Uh-huh. 
It's a new one we want to introduce called uh, Psalm 150. Praise the Lord. Messiah, the name above all. 
Let's pray. Father, you are good and glorious and beautiful. You are the King of kings and the Lords of lords. Father, I pray that you would be with us this morning. Father, prepare our hearts as Alan comes up to preach. Give him wisdom and allow us to set aside whatever we have going on this week. Help us settle our spirits and our minds and just prepare us for the truth that you have for us. Father, I pray that our utmost desire would be to see you glorified, to praise you, and to make much of you. And Father, I pray for our brothers and sisters who have given up everything for that hope, the missionaries that have gone throughout the world to spread the gospel. Father, I pray for um, Candy, our missionary to Bangladesh. I pray for the Boyers, our missionaries to Ireland. I pray for all the other missionaries serving throughout the world. I pray that you would give them peace, give them comfort uh, in these tumultuous times. I pray that you would give them strength and courage. You know, I pray that they would be unashamed and bold for the gospel. I pray for the missionaries here in America, um, the same prayer, that you would give them boldness, that you would give us boldness as we go throughout our lives throughout the week, that we would remember that we are missionaries, we are sojourners here, and that our goal, that our our job is to make much of you, to spread your gospel, to share the truth and the love of Christ. So Father, I pray that as we go throughout our week, that you would just let us remember that. Um, Father, we are so beneath you. You are so far above us. We don't deserve your grace and your mercy, but you've given it. You've given it in the form of Jesus Christ who died on the cross for our sins, who serves as our perfect high priest, who serves as our intercessor so that we can come before the throne and offer up praises and requests to you. Father, thank you for that. In the name of Christ, I pray. Amen. can be dismissed to go with uh right, you can turn to uh, Galatians chapter 4 Galatians chapter 4 starting in verse 21 So you follow along with me as I, as I read this, and this will kind of set the, uh, set the context for us. So Galatians chapter 2, starting in verse 21, and we'll go all the way through chapter 5, verse 1. So Paul writes, tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you listen to the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh while the son of the free woman was born through promise. Now this may be interpreted allegorically. These women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai, bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. Now Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. 
but the Jerusalem above is free, and she is our mother. For it is written, Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. Now you, brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise. But just as at that time he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit, so also it is now. But what does the Scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son, for the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. So, brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not, be submit, do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. So I don't know about you, but you arrive at this text and you read it, and then you have to read it again, and you read it again, at least for me. You know, maybe you're smarter than me. But I'm like, what? Okay, Jerusalem above, present Jerusalem, what's, what's going on here? Um, you know, what, what is this freedom talk? What is this slavery talk? What's, why, why is he using Hagar and Sarah as an allegory when that wasn't Moses' original intent. He's sharing narrative. It's historical narrative, right? But Paul takes liberty, and rightly so, to say this can be seen allegorically. He applies it that way to yet again help these Galatians understand what they have in Christ as opposed to what, who they were without Christ. That's what Galatians has been, right? It's, it's, it's Paul making argument after argument after argument for their sonship, for the freedom that they have. I mean, he labors so that they can understand that, you know. And that's not far off from just how we have to deal with each other today. I mean, do we not often go back to the trough of sin? Do we not know better, but we still go back like, well, maybe it's better this time, you know. Maybe, maybe the promises that sin offers this time will actually come through. You know, maybe, maybe it's better this time. I mean, we're kind of foolish in that way because we're broken, right? We're not completed. There will come a day where those desires won't be there, you know, where, where we won't be prone to wonder. You know, those things won't happen. But that's not the case right now. We're prone to wonder. So not saying these things so that you feel better, better about your sins, so that you feel better about yourself. So you're like, yeah, okay, well, I shouldn't feel so bad about this. You know, everybody's going to do it. No, we should grieve over our sin. We should hate our sin. We should hate it when we go back to the trough. We should hate it when we, when we, when we sacrifice uh, uh, holiness on the altar of self-indulgence. I mean, we should hate these things, right? We should hate them. But they are reality and something that we have to be very uh, aware of. So we speak these truths to each other all the time. We, we say the same things to one another all the time. It's not because you're an idiot or I'm an idiot. It's because we're prone to wonder. So we need the constant presence of the power of the gospel in our life, in front of our face, held up there. We just need it all the time. You know, we need it all the time. It's not because you're not intellectual enough to get it. It's just because you're a sinner. It's because you're broken. You know, it's because you're a child, in a sense, and you need to be carried all the way, just as I need to be carried all the way. So we need these reminders. Some need more reminders than others at times, um, and that's kind of the, the nature of things. But let me, let me do this. Because I really want to explore the deeper truths of Christian liberty today. That's my objective. All right, I want to really take some time to explore Christian liberty and how I have categorized these, how I believe they are rightly categorized. 
But before I get to that, I, I want to kind of give a simplified version of what Paul is saying here in these few verses leading up to chapter 5. It's not really that complex. Um, so let me trust that the time that I've spent reading through it, thinking through it, looking at stuff, to, to present to you something that's not as convoluted, not as complex, but kind of, well, here's, here's the byproduct. Here's the, here, here's the dividends of what we're reading. Here's where we arrive. Here's the punchline. I'm going to provide that for you and some, and some commentary. So let's kind of walk through this. You know the context. He's wanting the Galatians to understand, don't go back to where you were. You know, that, that's, that's to take freedom, reject it, and go back to slavery. That's nonsensical. That's, that's nonsense. I mean, if we look back at history across the world, but specifically American history, and if you could transport yourself back in time, and you could talk to a slave who had been very mistreated, as, as they often were, and then their release, the Emancipation Proclamation by Lincoln, all these things have happened. They're free men and free women. And then you talk to them, and they're just enjoying that brand new freedom. They're processing this, and then they're like, I'm, but some people have come to us and said, we, we, you know, we're really safest and, 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 and best if we're back where we were. You know, yeah, we got mistreated, but we had food. Yeah, we got mistreated, but we at least had a, a place to sleep. It was not very accommodating, but it was something, you know. And you'd be like, that's nonsense. Don't go back to that. So on a universal, cosmic, supernatural scale, this is how Paul appeals to them. Jesus has set you free in all the right ways, which we'll get into in a moment. So it's absolutely nonsensical for you to even consider going back to where you were. That's no sense at all. And so that's the context. And Paul, to further help them understand, because he's already explained uh, how the law related to them when they were not in Christ. The pedagogue, the disciplinarian, the taskmaster, you know, that, that enforcer uh, violently at times. You know, it, it exposes you to your guilt. It, 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 it heaps a curse on you. He explained to them, okay, so you understand how this pedagogue works. You understand what this means to have a task master and now you're not under that anymore it's a different relationship to god's law and um and so now he's explaining to them again so i would say you're in good company if you're talking to your husband or if you're talking to your wife or you're talking to your friend or whoever it is or your children and you're saying the same things over and over again maybe you're saying them in a different way this is the paradigm of the New Testament. This is how the biblical authors, especially Paul, dealt with these churches. He's sharing with them over and over again. And don't be surprised when you talk to a new believer and they kind of want to go back to that yoke of slavery and you have to present this again, present it again. I mean, we're dealing with broken people, especially considering the fact that if it's a brand new Christian, they're not just broken and fallen, but they're still babies in the faith. So I think there's a tremendous reason to have patience with one another when we, when we look at this. And uh, that's, a, that's a tremendous message to me in dealing with my own children um, and to my wife dealing with me. So, so he says, tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. So he wants to make it very clear to them. You say that you're Abraham's offspring and you're right. You're right, but you're not thinking of the right offspring. He kind of turns that on him. He's already dealt with the whole offspring thing before where he says, these are the true offspring of Abraham, those who are in Christ. But now he goes a little bit further. He says, okay, let's, let's chase this offspring theme. 
And let's give credit where credit is due. You're absolutely right. You are the offspring of Abraham, but Abraham had more than just Isaac. He also had Ishmael. And he goes on to explain what they would understand, or at least what the Jews would understand, but he goes on to, uh, to explain what's under in the, in the law, in the Torah. He goes on to explain to them, listen, there's Sarah and there's Hagar. Sarah was the servant to, I'm sorry, Hagar was the servant to Sarah. Abraham was the uh, husband to Sarah. Sarah, the wife to Abraham. These are things that we know, okay? But let's, let's bring it into this context of, of the first century. And he says, now, here's what happened between them. God made a promise, Genesis 12, 15, 17, which we've already discussed, which Paul already alludes to over and over again. Now he's going back to that again. He said, remember, God made a promise, and the promise would be this and this and this, and the manifestation of that or where we see that coming to fruition or the beginnings of it is in God giving Isaac to Sarah and to Abraham, despite their age, despite her being barren, despite all these things. So we understand the story. Sarah and Abraham are like, are you, are you kidding? You know, you've promised us this heir. You've promised us that this would come to pass. But we're old. This, this is not happening. So they take matters into their own hands. And what happens is they start to depend on their own creativity and their own human ingenuity and instincts to make a promise and the blessings of that promise to come to pass in their life. God says, I'm going to give a promise and you're going to be blessed with this promise, and it's going to be on my terms. And they're tired of waiting on his terms. Does it sound like anybody you know? They're tired of waiting on his terms, so they say, here's my terms. So what does Sarah and Abraham agree to do? Well, Abraham, you go into Hagar, since I can't have children, and that'll be the way that we get our heir. That'll be the way that we get the blessing. That'll be the way the promise begins to come to fruition. Well, that's not what God had planned. So Paul is bringing this from the past into their present, showing them how it relates to them as the Galatians, how it relates to them as Gentiles, and how it relates to the Jews who are unbelieving. Okay? So he says, you are like, as far as the allegory goes, you are like Abraham and Hagar. Hagar is a slave. Hagar is a servant. So the one who is born to Hagar is also born of a servant. So a servant as well. Not the child of promise. That's Ishmael. And so they look, he looks at those who are unbelieving and says, these Jews, the present Jerusalem, they are represented through Abraham and Hagar. They're trying through circumcision. They're trying through law keeping. They're trying through works to ensure for themselves the blessings and the hopes that come from God. And Paul is saying the blessings and hope from God are in Jesus Christ and in Christ alone. We've already talked about justification by faith alone. We've already talked about the, impute, the imputed righteousness of Jesus as he's given us his righteousness, as he's credited that to our account. And Paul's bringing that back up. He's like, that is for the believers. Jesus has done this. So you believers, you are represented through Abraham and Sarah. Because finally, after they went with their own agenda, after they tried their own means and realized, well, that's not what God intended. God, being faithful to his promise, years and years later, God gives them the son that he promised them. God gives them the heir through that line. We have Jesus and all of these great things, right? And so he's saying there's these two things, representative of two covenants. You've got Sinai. You've got this covenant that God had made here and God made with Abraham. You know, there's the covenant with Moses. There's a the covenant with uh, um, the covenant with Abraham, you know, God giving the law, God giving these promises to Abraham about nations, about all of this stuff. So he's saying these two groups are represented by this allegory, by these two relationships from the Old Testament. And so that's pretty simply what 
Paul says. It's not, it's not really that complex. But then he talks about one not only being representative of Hagar and Abraham and one being representative of Abraham and Sarah, but one being representative of the present Jerusalem and one being representative of or represented in the Jerusalem above. And so basically, simply put, you can get more into this, but I want to get into Christian liberty, but I got to do it by way of this argument that Paul is making. The present Jerusalem are those who are unbelieving, those trusting in Judaism, those trusting in works. Present Jerusalem, the religion of Judaism that subscribed to a system of law keeping in order to receive the blessings of God, i.e. salvation. So they're trusting in works. And he says, that's the present Jerusalem. That's who Jerusalem is. He says, but there's a Jerusalem that's above. Now, Paul taps a little bit into his eschatology where you read in Revelation about new heavens, new earth, new Jerusalem, all this stuff. All of these things depicting those who are to receive the blessing, those who are in Christ, those who are recipients of the covenants of promise, Ephesians 2. So Jerusalem above, all who believe, just very simply stated, because of the promises therein, the promise of what's going to be, the promise being fulfilled in their time right then, that's the good picture. That represents believers. That's Abraham and Sarah, because God brought about through his means, not human means. And you say, well, Sarah did have a baby the, the way that a woman should have a baby. Absolutely. But God supernaturally opened her womb so that that would happen. So we're not talking virgin birth. We're not talking those things. We're talking a, 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 a supernatural work. All right? We're talking God opened her womb to where she was barren until the appointed time so that she would give birth to the child, and that child would be the child of promise. It would be Isaac, which would ultimately lead to Jesus. And so, those people who don't go after their own efforts, Paul says, this is Jerusalem above. We're trusting Christ, his, his substitutionary atonement, his, uh, his stepping in our place, his gospel, his work, not our own. The others, the, the present Jerusalem. Okay, so um, one pastor said it this way, and then I'll move to the next section. With regard to the Jerusalem above, what he means by the Jerusalem above can be seen in Colossians 3, 1 through 3. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth, for you have died and your life is hid with Christ in God. The Jerusalem above represents the dwelling place of God. Our life and our freedom flows down from him, and our lives are already secure on the citizen books of that city. Sarah represents that city because she gave birth to Isaac, uh, not by reliance on herself, but by an act of God from above in fulfillment of his promise. So there's that distinction. That's all that he's talking about, okay? That's all that he was talking about there. So... Let's move forward into what I really wanted to kind of dive into here. So he says all of these things, and he talks about being a slave and being free. If the allegory applies to you in that you are representative of Hagar and Abraham, you are a slave, spiritually speaking. You are still estranged from the commonwealth of Israel, estranged from the covenants of promise. The wrath of God abides on you. You are a slave to your sin. Sin rules you. 
That's that camp. That's the present Jerusalem. And the other side is those who are free. So let's talk about freedom. I think freedom is something that we enjoy. Freedom is something that, speaking nationally, freedom that we would fight for, that people have died for, to secure, to maintain. Freedom's a big deal to us. It really is. I think there should be a warning issued that we should concern ourselves much more with Christian freedom than we should with national freedom, however. Our, our, our priority, our priority is what the gospel does in setting men and women free. But there's nothing wrong with wanting and enjoying freedom. Now, our freedoms are... <laughs> you know, are, are, are in question and under attack and all of these things. And at the end of the day, as frustrating as some of these things can be, you know, and, and you can pick your topic and we can, <laughs> we can see people get hot and bothered real fast over some of our freedoms. Like that's, that's, a, you know, that's, that's not constitutional. I get it. I get it. I get it. But I think we put what needs to be into perspective, into perspective. And first and foremost, the freedom that the gospel ensures for dead men and women who come to Christ. And so that's what we're going to be talking about, that kind of freedom. You understand that in the, in the Gospel of John, when we walked through that months and months, or maybe this part was, was well over a year ago, we got to the portion of the text where Jesus makes his triumphal entry. And you remember they're singing, Hosanna, Hosanna. And we understand that their excitement was not so much that they were going to be freed from, their, from the condemnation of sin, from the curse of sin. Their excitement was at the prospect of being delivered politically. They were thinking political freedom. So it's, a, it's an easy thing for us to misappropriate what true freedom is. It's an easy thing for us to misunderstand or misconstrue true Christian liberty. And so I want to get into this, and, and this is, this is uh, um, I, I'm going I'm to say that this is very, very basic. So for those of you that are super lofty thinkers, and I don't challenge you today, I'm sorry. <laughs> uh, I want to dive into this aspect of freedom, because I think there are two categories of freedom. I think there's freedom from and freedom to. I don't think that when you're set free, that it stops there. I don't think you're brought to neutrality. I think the idea of a prisoner who is told you are free to go implies spiritually that you're not just freed from something, you're free to something. There are things that are withheld from you when you are not a believer. There are things that you cannot do when you are not a believer that you can do now and are freed so that you will do those things. So I'm going to walk through two categories, free from and free to. So let's roll through this together because Jesus said, or, or I'm sorry, Paul says, for freedom, Christ has set you free. It's, it's interesting language, for freedom. Basically, you're not freed to lose freedom. You're not freed to go back. That's nonsense. You are freed for freedom. You are freed for something with an objective, with a trajectory, with an expectation. So 
Let's talk about the concept of Christian liberty or Christian freedom. It does not mean a few things. Graham and I were talking a few, uh, a few, a few uh, at the camp out, so a few weeks ago, um, about the struggle sometimes to stand up here and instead of telling people what not to think, exhort and admonish people what to think. You know, you don't want to spend all your time saying, well, don't think this way, don't think this way, and never get to, here's how you should think. Here's how you should proceed. I think those are important things and an important distinction that Graham made. So that's been in my brain. I'm like, is he saying that I always talk about what not to do, Graham? You know, so um, anyway, so uh, I don't think so. But so here we go, freedom from harm. So I am going to say a few things that freedom does not mean because I think this is important. Okay, so uh, obviously this does not mean freedom from hardship. For freedom, Christ has set you free. Obviously, it doesn't mean he has set you free from hardship, from turmoil, from these problems, from uh, desperation, from depression, you know, from uh, uh, accusation. He hasn't set you free from these things. And I think that that's pretty safe to say in this room that I think everybody, if you, if you, knowing most of the people here, you probably wouldn't think that. That's probably not your default mode is to think, well, Christ set me free. Why am I having a hard day? <laughs> Why doesn't everybody love me? Christ set me free. You know, if I'm free worthy, then I'm lovable, right? So I, I, I get it. Maybe we don't think that way, but some do. Some do. I mean, have you ever talked to a homeless person? Have you ever talked to an alcoholic about uh, who, who needed the gospel? You know, and their mind or what they say to you is, man, I, I, need, I need Jesus. He'll cure me of alcoholism. I need Jesus. He'll cure me of my homeless uh, status. That's not necessarily how Jesus works. That's not how Jesus works. A new heart creates a new way of thinking. Transformation of the heart leads to transformation of the mind. Transformation of the mind leads to right thinking. Right thinking leads to right doing. Right doing leads to a different life. You think differently about your addiction. You think differently about your sin. You think differently about your decision-making that leads to some hard things. It doesn't necessarily mean I'm going to get Jesus, which means I'm going to have a big home instead of a cardboard box. I'm going to get Jesus, which means I will no longer desire the bottle. That's not true in every case for every single person. Some people fight. I would make the generalization, say most people who are alcoholics who have been saved fight hard the rest of their life. And God is so gracious that there are some that God removes it altogether. And that is a tremendous, tremendous grace. There's so many things in my life. I can't, you know, read them, read them out loud, uh, you know, because uh, you, know, you think so much of me here. I'd hate for you to think this, you know, that I'm like, God, why don't you free me from this? You know, what's the deal? I mean, you know, I, I want to I be a better husband to my wife. I want to be a better father to my children. And there are things that I, I believe God wants those things. I mean, he showed it in his, in his word. God wants me to lead my wife well. He wants me to love my children well. He wants me to be uh, a, a fair disciplinarian. He wants me to be gracious when I need to be gracious. He wants me to be all these things. And sometimes it's a struggle. I'm like, God, why don't you just fix me? Make me gracious. This is good for my kids. It's good for my wife. Instead, my wife looks at me like she wants to punch me in the throat all the time. You fix this. You made this mess. No, I don't really say that. That's how I feel. I'm, th I'm this mess. You can fix it. You know, fix it. That's how I feel sometimes. You know, so Jesus is not the miracle pill that makes you perfect. His righteousness makes you right in God's eyes. And he changes your heart, which leads to right thinking, which leads to right action, which leads to God glorification. 
this may not apply to any lady in this room, but ladies, it won't help you. Jesus is not the, uh, the miracle pill to, to getting a husband. And I say that for my college days. <laughs> you know, um, I don't think any lady is like that in this room, but when I was in college, and ladies, if you're watching online, I am sorry. You, William Carey, ladies. There were some that, uh, that, you know, they thought spirituality was equivalent to, I'm going to get a husband. Love Jesus, get marriage. I was like, I see how you can kind of get somewhere if you're like, hey, the best thing for you is to live for Christ and trust everything else to pan out. You know, if you're, if you're solid in Christ, the odds are you're, you're not going to go after a schmuck. You know, if you're solid in Christ, you're not going to want a guy that, you know, you know, spends you know, 70% of his time looking at himself in the mirror and has nothing to do with you. That's probably not going to be the guy that you ladies would want if you're pursuing Jesus. You know, as a matter of fact, the, when I was in college, it was the girls that, and this is so revealing of me, okay, this is confession hour. I remember being in college and there were girls that were so solid in Christ. And they didn't give a rip about any guy. I'm like, God. Come on, Jesus, you're taking all of them, you know? And so, like, you know, they're all married to Jesus, you know? They would say that. They would say that, married to Jesus. I'm like, okay, I guess you're the bride of Christ, but you're taking that a little too far, you know? You know? And then if one of them possibly gives you the time of day, you've got to live up to their husband, Jesus. It's like, you know, uh, did you wake up at 3 a.m. this morning to spend time with our holy Lord? No, I didn't. You're gone. We're done. You know, it's that. It's that. All right, I got to get through or we'll be out here until 1.15. All right, so here we go. This kind of freedom, Christian liberty, doesn't mean financial freedom. It doesn't mean that. Um, it doesn't mean uh, freedom from temptation. It doesn't mean freedom from a sinful struggle. And I say that, uh, I think because it's obvious, I say that because the sin nature is still there. And I hope that's encouraging to some of you because there is this draw, there is this temptation. Although not slaves to sin, there still is this oppressive nature that sin has in our life. There still is this force and this draw because Satan and sin knows how to cater to the lusts of our flesh. He knows how to cater to our passions, to our fleshy desires, whether that be, uh, whether that be flesh literally or whether that be you know, prominence or whether that be financial gain, whatever. The, the enemy knows how to do that. And he does that. He's an opportunist, and he's really good at what he does. So it's not financial freedom, freedom from temptation, sinful struggle. It's not political freedom. It's not a license to sin. We have to say that because Paul addressed it. And you have probably talked to people in your life who, yeah, well, <laughs> great, sin abounds, you know, sin abounds so that grace may increase. Grace abounds so that sin may increase. You know, this is, this is, this is building God's testimony. You know, I mean, he'll forgive me. I've heard that. I know you've heard it before. Talk to somebody in the middle of sin. Well, God, forgive me. He's a loving, forgiving God. That's licentiousness. And this is misconstrued because true freedom does connote the reality of sinning without eternal consequence for you. So here, let, me, let me say that again. When we sin as believers... The reason we don't go to hell and suffer the eternal consequence is because the justice that we deserved was redirected onto Jesus. So justice was still dispensed, still poured out. Wrath was still dispensed just on a substitute. So I would say that, yes, we sin, 
with no eternal consequence in that sense for us because we get Christ, we get heaven, we get these things. So some people can misconstrue that. We're not freed from God's moral standards. We're not free from God's moral standards. We are in the predicament that we are in because of God's moral standards. Genesis 1. We are given the law because of God's moral standards. We can't escape those things. Our culture has come up with its own form of freedom. Our culture is redefining these things, spiritually speaking. Our culture is saying, well, this is freedom. Listen, when you live in a relativistic world, when your truth is your truth, my truth is my truth, it's very easy to arrive at a morality that is always great, where you're always hitting bullseye because you make up and define your morality on the fly. Avery comes in and says, well, I did this, I did that. And I'm like, ooh, that's a sin. And Avery says, not for me. Not for me, I'm good to go because for me, my truth is that's not a sin. Well, we get major problems when we start traveling down that road. When culture determines for itself what morality is, it's easy to stay within the boundaries of that morality. That's how we end up with people thinking they are a good person. I'm a good person. By what standard, Matt? By what standard? By my morality. But what about God's morality? When truth is relative, there's no limit to what morality is or what it is not. The issue is that God is the objective standard of and for morality. And Paul writes, he says, for for freedom, Christ has set us free. Paul uses this type of language to indicate that there is no way Christ set us free to become slaves again. And he says, do not return to a yoke of slavery. So here we are, the two categories, freed from and free to. Most of these are going to be very easy to compute in your mind. Some of them might be some, something different for you to think of. We understand that we're free from the curse. We're free from condemnation, right? Where the spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. For those who are in Christ, there is what? No condemnation. We get that. That's probably our default. If I say, okay, okay, you're in Christ uh, with a you know, if for whom Christ is set free, he is free indeed. Where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. What does that mean to you? And you would say, well, I'm freed from the curse. Praise the Lord. I'd say, absolutely. I'm freed from the condemning effects of sin. I'd say, you're absolutely right. And that's probably your default as it is my default. Because we're freed from those things. And where that is right, well, and good, my challenge to you today is to delve a little bit more deeply into the mechanics of what freedom is. And that's what I want to hope is, is that we leave here with the excitement and fulfillment of knowing that, man, we are freed from condemnation. <laughs> we don't have a crosshairs on our chest anymore. You know, God's wrath, we don't have that. But you have so much more than that. You understand that. And so let's go into some of those things. So you're not just freed from condemnation. You're not just freed from the curse. You are, you will die, newsflash. But the second death is not for you. The eternal death is not for you. Because someone became a curse for you. You're freed from the rule and the slavery of sin. Now this is an important one. Romans 6, 1 through 6. Listen to this. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? Far from it. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? Therefore, 
We have been buried with him through baptism into death. So that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too walk in newness of life. For if we have become united with him in his likeness, in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that our old self was sacrificed, I'm sorry, was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with so that we would no longer be slaves of sin. For the one who has died is what? Freed from sin. Apart from Christ or without freedom, we have no choice but to believe the empty promises that sin makes to us. You don't have a hope in Christ. You don't have a Christology. You don't have that worldview. And even if you did, those promises aren't effect, effective for you because you don't believe. If you die in that unbelieving state, what happens? Those promises were never for you. That, that we can be assured of. And so you're stuck and enslaved to believing the empty promises of sin. You have no other way to go. You believe that you can dictate your own morality. You know, sin will make all of these empty promises. Sin will lie to you over and over again. It will lie to you so that you can get financial gain. It will lie to you so that you can have a better marriage or so that you can feel more desirable in the dating game. And I think of that because of a guy at the, at the gym there's a guy I go to the gym with. I, I, I've never spoken to him. I want to be careful how I say these things. Um, but I was told by someone at the gym who, well, it's a, uh, someone at the gym who is helping train this guy. You know, this, this, this guy who had been coming to the gym, uh, tall, skinny, kind of lanky guy. And one day he comes in with a mohawk. And I was like, what has happened to you? And it's, it's a big pronounced mohawk. I'm like, you know, and this, I mean, he's a... Word is he's an, he's an IT guy, no offense to Jake or IT guys. They, they, they tend to stay in caves, so he had that kind of complexion, um, you know, and, and, and you know, could, could spend a, a little more time in the gym, right? And so, okay, there you go. And he's trained, and I'm like, this guy's got a mohawk. He is unashamedly sporting that thing, you know? And I talked to the trainer one day. I said, I, I think I want to be trained by you because you instill confidence in folks. I wasn't trying to pick on the guy. I really wasn't. I was trying to make a joke if I was insensitive toward the Mohawk dude. Lord, convict me. But, and then he goes into telling me this whole big story. And I won't give those details because some of them are in, inappropriate for this setting. But he started telling this guy all of these things that he needed to do in order to enhance his romantic life with his wife in order to draw the attention of his wife who had estranged herself from him, who had become disinterested in him. And so he was telling him all these things about, look, you've got to put on muscle. You've got to change your hair. You've got to do things to get noticed because that's the secret to winning your wife's affections. Like, you know, and so, you know, I punched the trainer in the face and I walked away. <laughs> I didn't do that because he would eat me. Um, but it grieved me because I thought that's, that's, those are the empty promises that the world has no choice but to look at. What else do they have to look at? They don't have a hope in Christ. So apart from Christ, I would argue that we have no choice but to believe the empty promises that sin makes. Sin makes the promises that there are things better than Jesus. But in Christ, with freedom, we are redeemed and freed from that slave owner so that we can pursue and place our hope 
and confidence in the promises of Christ. So drastically different context going from slavery to freedom for the believer. We're also free from futile efforts to curry favor with God and the bondage to unrighteous deeds. This is something we know, but we have to let this sink in. I mean, if you just sit quiet, quietly enough, long enough, and just let it kind of saturate your mind, it's really overwhelming to think that prior to being set free, when I was a slave, a part of that meant that I was enslaved to deeds that no matter how much I worked could never bring glory to God, ever. All the puppies I adopt, all the ladies I help across the street, all the flat tires that I change, all the humanitarian efforts, all of these things don't curry favor with God apart from Christ. And that's a bad place to be. I mean, I have in my mind's eye a a child that wants the affirmation of his dad. A child that wants to do things. Hey, Dad, did you, did you see how I cast that line in the, in the pond? Wesley talks about these things often, and I, I sense that. Yeah, that's, a, that's awesome, man. Caught a, caught a, what, a small mouth or a large mouth bass that you caught yesterday? Large mouth, you know. He, he brought that to the Jeep. Man, look at that cause. That's awesome. Take a picture. I will. You know, that's awesome. You caught a, you caught a fish, you know. And I'm not saying he's necessarily looking for the affirmation or approval, but we understand that that, that that happens all the time. Kids want their parents' approval. They want to curry favor. They want that. They want that. You know, and I know a lost person probably uh, uh, maybe doesn't think, okay, I want God to accept me. And some do when they, when they don't understand how the, how the gospel works and how freedom works or how slavery works. But I don't think it's a stretch at all to say that there are even lost people that think, well, I, well, I know for a fact it is. There are people that think that God's going to accept me, God's going to love me, and their basis is not Jesus. Their basis is not being set free. Their basis is my work. Their basis is what I accomplish, you know, what I do. Maybe they're good people, and by the world standard, they are morally upright. They're, 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 they're a loyal friend. They're a loyal spouse. They, 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 they you know, they pay their taxes. They don't even grumble about it. Maybe they're just the cream of the crop in terms of uh, seeing people through a secular lens. And they want that approval, but they feel isolated. Like, you know, why don't I feel differently after I do these things? Because those things were not meant to merit or to curry favor with God. Jesus was. And that's what we're freed from, the futile efforts to curry favor with God and the bondage to unrighteous deeds. We're also freed from the wrath of God. We're freed from God's divine justice. There's a movie called The Recruit with The Recruit, (laughs) The Recruit with Colin Farrell and Al Pacino years and years ago. I think it was early 2000s, late 90s, whatever. And this guy is, is Colin Farrell. He's hired on and goes through a school to be um, to be in the CIA. And uh, it's this whole kind of, not really psychological thriller, but uh, action, drama, psychological thriller type thing. And he goes through the training and all of this, and, and, and he goes undercover. And all that to find out that Al Pacino, who is the instructor, is actually the bad guy. And he kind of catches him confessing his crimes whenever Al Pacino is about to kill off Colin Farrell's 
character. And they go outside, and he had this device, this uh, technology that was able to project, well, uh, or so Pacino thought, uh, project everything that Pacino said, confessing his crime, and uh, had all that. So Al Pacino thought that he had, he, had, he, had, he, he was outed, that everybody was out there. So they go outside, and there's all the SWAT team, there's all the police, and then Colin Farrell comes out, and he's like this, and there's about 50 red dots on his center mass. <laughs> and, uh, and you could see in his face the panic. Oh, my goodness. And then Pacino thinks that they've already heard, so they, he thinks that they're here for Colin Farrell's character, or uh, for him, but in fact, they are there for, for Colin Farrell's character. So Pacino's like, well, you got me. And he starts to, to, to read his, you know, his, his mail out loud. And, there, and then you see slowly the, uh, the red dots going center mass of Al Pacino. And then he realizes, oh, I just told him myself. But you look at Colin Farrell's face and this sigh of relief because he's no longer in the crosshairs. And we think of God's justice set free from those crosshairs, set free from the wrath of God that abides on everyone that's not in Christ. And there's a sigh of relief and reprieve because we're freed from that danger. So we're free from that wrath. We're free from the necessity of human perfection. Christian liberty means that you are freed from the need and the pressure to be perfect. Under the law, you have to be perfect but with Christ, you are freed from that pressure. You understand that that's what the law will show you, that you're not perfect, that you need Jesus, that you need freedom. You know, the law still shows us that we're not perfect. It shows us God's morality and how we're not God, and so we're not perfect, right? But there seems to be this pressure outside of Christ to meet the law standards, and we can't. And it's a lofty and inconceivable expectation. We're freed from the necessity of human perfection. We are free from the oppressive nature of sin. You're freed from the oppressive nature of sin. There's a difference between our past sins being oppressive and being a highlight reel for grace. Let me explain what I mean by that. You and I have sins from yesterday, we have sins from 10 years ago, we have sins going as far back as you and I can remember. And some people live under that oppression. Now, if you're lost, you're definitely oppressed. Your sin condemns you. (laughs) You know, uh, you're enslaved to it. So there's a definite oppressive effect. But here's the thing, you are free. So let me give you this word of admonition or of admonishment where we are sometimes prone, call it humility, call it whatever, we are prone sometimes to live under the oppression of past sins. Now, I'm not saying we be flippant about sins or we ignore those things or uh, I'm not saying that. I'm saying there is a big difference from living under that oppression and looking back at that sin and saying, that sin, although I was wrong for that, I'm freed from the bondage of that, and now that sin serves as a highlight reel for the grace of God. I don't sin so that God may show his grace, but when sin happens, grace does abound. That's the, that's the, that's the, the mechanics of that. Christian liberty means that we have the freedom not to be burdened or oppressed by our past sins. But I think 